Scripture reading today is from the book of Judges, chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 together. Judges 4, 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray as we continue to worship together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that it will accomplish what it is intended to do at this time by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now recently I've learned a little bit about the Chernobyl disaster that began in April of 1986. And the Chernobyl disaster was arguably the greatest nuclear accident our world has ever seen. And one of the many things that stands out from this disaster were the amazing acts of heroism that were demonstrated in response. And I want to tell you about one example of this. After the nuclear core exploded, emergency crews were in a panic to cool it down and slow the spread of radiation. And so, naturally, firefighters came and they hosed down the wreckage with water. And this did cool it down some, but in other ways, it only magnified the problem. Because uh, the, the fear was that eventually, the core would melt through the floor and then fall into the basement of the building, which is now flooded from the water. And what would happen if, 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 this, if this happened is steam would be produced and potentially the pressure would build such that an even greater explosion would take place and even more radiation would be released. And if this happened, the, the damage wouldn't be 
just the immediate area, but it would be much of the European continent for hundreds of miles. It's, I can't even, it's, it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around something that could be so potentially catastrophic. And in the face of these overwhelming circumstances, the authorities turned to three plant engineers to save the continent from the edge of even greater disaster. And so these three men, Alexei Anenenko, Valery Bezpalov, and Boris Baranov, were told that they needed to navigate the flooded basement to open the release valves and drain the water. And so as the story goes, these three men readily participated in the mission to save their people. Faced with the possibility of the destruction of much of Europe, these men, dressed only in wetsuits and armed only with flashlights, navigated and waded into the watery, radioactive basement, and they succeeded in opening the valves and draining the water from the basement. And what's perhaps even more surprising is the men survived this ordeal. And in 2018, they were honored with the Order for Courage by the president of Ukraine. They were honored as heroes for the way that they readily participated in rescuing their people. And God forbid that we ever have to face anything that dramatic or catastrophic. And I'll admit, if I, if I had to face what these rescuers face, I don't, I don't know if I could have done it. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you know what needed to be done, you know what you needed to do, but you had no idea how you were going to be able to bring yourself to do it? There are certain times in life where God calls us to follow him in some area, and, and the way that we respond to him matters. But it's often difficult to obey God. It's often difficult to follow him. And we may waver. And if we lack reassurance or if we lack resolve, we may shrink away from facing the difficult task that must be done. Many of the people in our Forgotten Family series have faced such moments like this. And today we're going to see a time when Israel was under incredible pressure and faced with overwhelming opposition. And glory would be found or lost based on how readily the, the characters participated in following God. And what we're going to see is that God honors those who readily follow him. So if you haven't already opened there, turn with me to Judges 4. And as you open to Judges 4, let me give you some background to the book of Judges. The book of Judges tells about one of the darkest times in Israel's history. After being redeemed from slavery in Egypt and wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, they finally enter into the land that God had promised them and their, to their ancestors. And Israel was supposed to be a holy people in this land, but they had failed to drive out the pagan nations that were there, and instead they continued to live among them, and as they continued to live among them, they began to live like them and look like them. And Judges recounts these dark days as a series of cycles. 
And these cycles work like this. Israel sins against God. God gives Israel over to their enemies who oppress them. Israel cries out to God for mercy and deliverance. Then God raises up a judge to save Israel. And then, and also when you think of a judge, don't think of some, some old guy with a robe and a gavel and a powdered wig. Think of someone like William Wallace, liberator of Scotland from the English, like in the movie Braveheart. That's what these judges were like. So the judge liberates Israel, and then they have rest from their enemies for a time. But then the cycle repeats itself. Sin, oppression by enemies, cries to God to help. God sends a judge who liberates them. They have peace from their enemies, and then they sin again and repeat, and on and on and on it goes in the book. But each time this cycle repeats, things get progressively worse and worse. And so they don't just repeat and go circles. Instead, they spiral down like a toilet that is flushing. That's the book of Judges. It gets worse and worse. And the book ends in an incredibly dark place. And we are told that this is because at this time, Israel had no king, And so every person did what was right in their own eyes rather than in God's eyes. And so the book ends in a place of total chaos and anarchy. But now we're in Judges 4 today. And by the time we get to Judges 4, we've already heard um, about some of these judges and how they've rescued Israel from their enemies. But now the cycle is about to repeat itself again. And verses 1 through 4 of Judges 4, explains that Israel again sinned, and this time they were oppressed by Jabin, king of Canaan, and his general, Sisera. Now the text says that Sisera's army had 900 chariots. Now chariots were some of the most technologically advanced instruments of warfare at that time. They're like the, they're like the tanks or the fighter jets of their era. And the fact that these chariots were made of iron just makes them even scarier. And they cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. And in this time, the people of Israel cried out to God for help. And in verse 4, we are introduced to Deborah. And the narrator highlights the fact that Deborah is female. Her name's Deborah. She's a woman. She's a prophetess. And she is a wife. And Deborah is someone that the people recognize that God speaks through. And so Deborah summons Barak, and through her, God tells Barak how God will give him victory over their enemy. But note how the text puts this, because God doesn't explain Israel's victory over their enemies, generally speaking, he specifically singles out Sisera. In verse 7, God says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, and I will give him into your hand, speaking to Barak. So this is a battle between Israel and Jabin, the king of Canaan, but more specifically, this is a showdown between Barak and Sisera. Now, Barak, understandably, is probably a little nervous about this whole endeavor. 
Israel has been cruelly oppressed for 20 years. And remember those iron chariots? What is he going to do against 900 iron chariots? And so here we see for the first time a little bit of a hint that perhaps these judges aren't all going to be so amazing. Deborah, a prophetess of God, has just given Barak a direct command to go. And Barak doesn't reply with ready obedience, but with a big if. In his reply in verse 8, Barak states four times the conditions around his willingness to go. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And what's striking is that Barak doesn't ask for God to go with him. Contrary to the the cultural conventions of the time, Barak asks, he asks this woman, the wife of Lapidoth, to go with him to the battlefield. And unless she goes with him, he will refuse to go. Deborah replies in a way that's it's reassuring, but it's also ominous. In verse 9, she says to Barak, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Deborah doesn't condemn Barak, but her reply seems to communicate, okay, I'll go with you. But if you want a woman to go with you into the battlefield, a woman is going to get credit for defeating your enemy. So you'll go into battle, but your path will not bring you glory. So Barak and his army gather, and just as God promised, Sisera and his chariots, they come out to face him. And Deborah gives Barak the order to charge, and the battle ensues. And I want to point out two striking things about this battle. The first thing is that it's so briefly described. Barak went down, and the Lord routed Sisera's army. And outside of the mention that this is God's doing, there's really no detail given about what the battle was like. And so evidently that's because that's not, the, that's not the concern of the story. Because it's the second detail that's more important here. Look at how the text puts it in verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled away on foot. <clears throat> Verse 16, Barak pursued the, chari- the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim. Verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, which we know is near Kadesh. Now remember what, remember what Deborah told Barak? The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And now we have, we have Barak and the chariots going one way, And we have Sisera fleeing on foot and escaping another way. Sisera heads in the direction of Heber the Kenite, who is one of his allies. But what's surprising is that it's Heber's wife, Jael, who comes out to meet him. And she greets him with 
smooth talking and with an offer of hospitality. She says, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And so Sisera enters the tent. He's exhausted. And this mighty general turns to this woman to protect him, to keep him safe. And what's fascinating is here in the tent is where the real battle is going to take place. In contrast to the battle between Barak and Sisera's army, the narrative slows down here, and great detail is given about what happens in Jael's tent. We read in verses 18 and 19, He turned aside to her. She covered him with a rug. She opened a skin of milk. She gave him a drink. She covered him. And as we read this, it's, it's difficult to not be suspicious or not to wonder about a few things. Is she inviting him into her tent to seduce him? Or is she playing the part of a mother caring for her child? Or is she simply hiding him to keep him safe? We're just going to have to read on. Now, Sisera is exhausted, but before he falls asleep, in verse 20, he gives Jael orders. And hear, hear this, because his words are rich in irony. First, Sisera says to Jael to be on the lookout for a man, which is ironic because we know from the story earlier that Sisera's downfall will be at the hand of a woman, not a man. But even more ironically, Sisera orders her to make sure to tell any man that comes by that there is no one in her tent. So make sure, make sure you see the double meaning here in verse 20. Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. Now this kind of double meaning technique, this is a, a fascinating way that Hebrew narratives, Hebrew stories especially, shine. And if, to make the point, if I could embellish a little bit, here's, here's, how, here's how their dialogue goes. Sisera, if any man comes looking for me, Jael, don't let him get me. Jael, right, I won't let him get you. Sisera, great. So if, if anyone asks for me, I'm not here, okay? Jael, right, I'll make sure you're not here anymore. You see what's going on? The narrator's like, you get it? He's winking at us. And so after covering him, in verse 21, the narrative again slows down and dramatically continues. Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and she took a hammer in her hand and she went to him softly and she drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground. And then, very matter-of-factly, the text simply says, in case you didn't understand, so he died. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, like, talk about an understatement here. There is, there is not a middle school boy who, when he hears this story, his eyes don't bulge out of his face. Because Jael offers this warrior protection and hospitality. She reassures him and she comforts him. She gives him some milk and a blankie and puts him down for his afternoon nappy nap. And then she puts him to sleep good and hard. She makes Sisera sleep like he had never slept before. And at this moment, as if on cue, Barak comes along, pursuing Sisera. And Jael comes out to meet Barak, and Barak doesn't even have to ask any questions. Jael invites him in to see Sisera. And the text presents this from Barak's perspective. He's finally finished chasing down the chariots and destroying Sisera's army. Sisera is next. And now this woman appears and says, Psst, hey, he's in here. And so Barak is really excited. And so he unsheaths his sword. And he creeps up to the tent on his tiptoes. And he motions to his men to follow quietly behind him. And like a SWAT leader, he counts to three. And then he, in one sweeping motion, lunges into the tent with his sword drawn. And look, there's Sisera. But he's dead. And he's got a tent peg in his head? Sisera is here. But he is no more. And just like that, the words of Deborah are fulfilled. To his credit, God gave Barak the victory. But to his loss, a woman stole his kill. What a crazy story this is. Happy Sunday, everyone. Um, Besides its entertainment value, what in the world are we supposed to take from this? Now, if I, had, if I had to distill this story down to just one lesson, it would be something like this. God honors those who readily follow him. God honors those who readily follow him. So let me unpack that a little and, and, and point out a few ways this story challenges us. The first way is that it was God who ultimately delivered Israel. As this chapter concludes in verses 23 and 24, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. It was God that did this that day. God was the one who raised up Deborah and Barak. God was the one who drew out Sisera and his army. God was the one who gave the order to charge through his prophetess Deborah. God was the one who routed the army. These people, Israel, they walked away understanding that it was God who ultimately saved them. And this was difficult for Barak to anticipate beforehand because he faced an army that vastly outmatched him and it oppressed him and his people for so long. And and yet, the text tells us it wasn't the might of Barak's army, but it was the Lord that routed the enemy and saved Israel. So let me ask, let me ask us, whom or what 
do we look to for security? Likely there's something that when you look at it, makes you anxious or makes you feel insecure. And maybe to you, it, it looks and it feels like an army of 900 iron chariots. Now the question for us is, who are we ultimately looking to for this to be resolved? Because if we're looking to ourselves and not looking to God, we'll hesitate like Barak. We won't be ready to follow God when he tells us to follow him and when the time comes. But if we recognize that God is the one who will ultimately deliver us, we'll understand that it doesn't matter if we are weak. It doesn't matter if we're outnumbered or if the truth that we hold to is unpopular. What matters is that God is the one who delivers. And as we remember that truth, we'll be ready to follow him wherever he leads. So that's the first way this challenges us. The second way this story challenges us is that it shows us that God asks for unconditional obedience. God asks for unconditional obedience. Fortunately for Barak and for the Israelites, Deborah was willing to go with him. In the end, Barak did do what he was told, and he followed God's lead into battle. But it came at a cost. Because, because his obedience was conditional, the glory did not go to him, but it went to a woman. And this raises a question that probably many of us are wondering about, which is, what does this passage have to say about the role of men and women? And that's, that's a great question, and that's a great thing to wonder about. And here's what I'll say to that. This, is, this just isn't a story about the role of men and women. And the point of this story is not about Deborah, the warrior prophetess, and all of her might. And it's not about Jael, the tent peg killer, and how women should do the same. It's, it's not about that. These women in the story are here to help us see a point about Barak and about how the way he went about leading caused him to lose honor. This is a story about ready and unconditional obedience to God, especially by those who lead God's people. And because Barak followed conditionally, he demonstrated that he was not worthy of the glory befitting a leader of Israel. So let me ask us, how do we negotiate our obedience? Following Jesus often makes us uncomfortable. Jesus calls us to do things that are, that are difficult, that are scary, that stretch us. And when we are faced with those commands, do we follow Jesus with readiness? Or do we lay out our own terms and conditions? If I get a bonus or a raise, or once I have a certain amount of money saved, then I will start giving, or, or I'll increase my giving to what I'm comfortable with. Or if my husband, or if my wife, or kids, or parents, or friend, or boss, or whoever does not fill in the blank, then I will not love them and treat them as God commands. Or if God heals me, or does not heal me, or if God gives me, or, or does not give me, fill in the blank, 
then I will follow him or not. Or when I'm older, then I'll obey God. Nathan talked about that a little bit last week. Or if there's no risk involved, then I'll obey. Or, or if it's not going to hurt at all, or if it doesn't hurt or affect my status in any way, then I'll obey God. Or I'll obey if I feel like it and if I'm ready. Friends, God asks us to be ready to follow him unconditionally. And when we negotiate our obedience, we lose the honor and the glory that God would offer us. Now, the third way that this text challenges us is that it shows us that God saves his people through surprising means. He saves his people through surprising means. When God told Barak that he was to gather and lead an army to fight against Sisera, I imagine it was probably hard for Barak to see how this was going to work out. And like I mentioned earlier, there's not really a lot of info given about how this battle went. There's clues in in the story and in the poem in chapter 5 that hint at some sort of possibly um, divinely directed weather phenomena that gave Israel the upper hand on the battlefield. But whatever it was, it was clear that it was God who saved his people. And no one could have anticipated how he would do it. It was God who who caused Sisera to flee to the tent of Jael. And even as Israel and, and, and her army fought on the battlefield, the kill shot was not dealt by a sword on the battlefield, but it was dealt in the tent of a non-Hebrew with a domestic household tool in the hand of a woman. Certainly no one expected women armed with tent pegs to be the way that God would save them. So let me ask us, how do we limit God's ability to work? Sometimes we're faced with a problem, and we don't know how God is going to resolve it. We might think that God needs to remove this problem, but instead God gives us the strength to endure it. Or maybe we think that God needs to get rid of these circumstances, but God redeems the circumstances and he uses them to shape us more into the people that he desires for us to be. Or maybe we simply find another surprising solution that's outside of our expectations. We wouldn't have expected God to create the nation of Israel out of the elderly Abraham and Sarah. We wouldn't have expected God to raise up David, who is the youngest of his brothers, to be leader and king over Israel. We might not have expected God to, to uh, we, we might have expected God to prevent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from going into the fiery furnace. Or we might have expected Daniel to, to not go into the lion's den, but God saved these men through these dangers. We wouldn't have expected God to send the Messiah through the Virgin Mary. We wouldn't have expected the Messiah to look like a carpenter from Nazareth or for his, for his disciples to be tax collectors and fishermen. Or that this risen Messiah 
is Israel's king, and he is the Lord of all creation, and God's answer to the anarchy we bring into our world when we each do what is right in our own eyes. And we, we, we wouldn't probably have expected that it is people like you and I that God is using to accomplish his purposes in this world. But he is. So let's not limit God's ability to work, but remember that God saves his people through surprising means. Life has a way of throwing problems at us that can feel so impossible and can feel so overwhelming. And in the face of these, God commands us to follow him. And the way we respond to him matters. And as we respond and follow him, we need to remember that it is God who ultimately saves. We need to remember that God asks for our unconditional obedience and that God saves his people through surprising means. And above it all, we need to remember that God honors those who readily follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for instructing us through your word. By your spirit, help us to be a people who readily follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.